it's a very simple thing. I mean, if you don't understand where your uh, interlocutor, your partner, your colleague is coming from, um, your opponent, your uh, uh, your competitor in business is coming from, right? You're not going to do a very good job of either uh, cooperating with them or competing with them. All right, welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley with my co-host, Elon Martin. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Gordon M. Hahn. Gordon is a geopolitical analyst. I'll get him to give a bit of his history, but before I do, I'll list his books, because that's primarily how I know him, his books and his blog. So we spoke with Gordon, I think it's, it was around five years ago now, um, right prior to the release of his previous book, Ukraine Over the Edge. Um, I th at the time, we were interviewing you, Gordon, about your work on um, the two books that you'd written on Russia's Islamist threat, so the book by that name and mm -hmm. the Caucasus Emirate Mujahideen. And you've written one other book um, prior to that on Russia's revolution from above on the uh, an analysis of the the Gorbachev and or late Gorbachev and and um, all the Yeltsin years, so everything that was going on in the nineties mm -hmm. and what what that actually was, and your latest book is the Russian dilemma, security, vigilance, and relations with the West from Ivan the Third to Putin. This one just came out. Um, was it in the last few months, uh, Gordon, or late last uh, year? In uh, November, I think it was. Okay, yeah, late last year. I just I just got it recently, but um, it's a it's a timely book. So I think that uh, as you write in the in the preface, or I believe it's the preface or the introduction. Um, well, I won't quote from it, but basically, the implication is um, a lot of analysts, not and not only analysts, but the general public and politicians in the West don't understand Russia, and it seems like they don't want to either. And this is kind of a new foray for you. This is kind of like deep history. Um, you were focused mostly mm -hmm. on uh, like contemporary history. So first, I want to just ask you, what was the inspiration from this book? And how did you get into kind of a, a history that goes back through, well, pretty much all of Russian history, but focusing mostly on the last like 500 years? Right. Um, well, basically, uh, for ever since the NATO expansion essentially began, <laughs> I had it's sort of a intuitive sense that, uh, and you can talk to really, um, it's actually not much <laughs> rocket or political science if you talk. Basically, I'm trying to get at the, the book, the idea of the book is to get at the way Russians view their history and culture and their place in the world, right? So that we can understand their point of view, so we can understand how they might react when we take certain actions. That's the essentially the idea. And if you talk to you know, almost all Russians that I have spoken to, um, they express a sort of historical, uh, shall we say, a, a sense of uh, suspicion, mi minimally speaking, of the West, um, a sense of uh, gripe about the West. And this pattern occasionally in throughout Russian history gets broken, and there are periods um, you might call it periods of confusion or periods when the old model has been discredited, so they're turning to something else. And I, what I'm calling is the security vigilance culture, right? It's a culture that's very mm -hmm. concerned about um, their national security. And most of that concern is focused on the West for 
historical reasons that I cover that I cover in the book. And so you really can't, if you don't understand the vigilance norm in uh, Russian security culture and political culture, then you simply cannot predict um, accurately how the Russians are going to react to things like NATO expansion to, you know, lectures about uh, democracy, um, promises of economic assistance, and then much ac- economic assistance doesn't come like, as, in, the, in the early 90s, um, these sorts of things. And so, mm-hmm. and, and that's true really in, in any relationship, right? If you don't understand where the other, it's a very simple thing. I mean, if you don't understand where your uh, interlocutor, your partner, your colleague is coming from, um, your opponent, your, uh, uh, your competitor in business is coming from, Right. You're not going to do a very good job of either uh, cooperating with them or competing with them. Right. Yeah. It's just not going to work. And that's going to lead to a a breakdown um, uh, and uh, of the relationship. And in in, in this case, we're talking about two basically United States and Russia or NATO and Russia. You're talking about uh, a great power and then a, a declining superpower with a huge alliance, which may, basically makes it still a superpower. Um, you're talking about a serious problem when there's confrontation in the relationship. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's basically the, the genesis of, of the book. Um, you know, I, I talk about it in different terms, and I discuss what I mean by security culture and vigil- vigilance norm, but that's the sort of a simple way to try to explain what I was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. And I also was trying to get at the way what are the things that spark that that provoke uh, change in uh, uh, the attitude towards the West uh, over time? Mm-hmm. Well, one of uh, I'm just going to focus in on just one tiny thing you said there um, because I was listening to, you know, I've been watching interviews lately with what's going on, and uh, just one comment that Scott Ritter made was that, you know, in the '90s, you know, after the end of the Cold War. Um, in the like in the in the state in the State Department in the just the foreign policy crowd in Washington, that it seems like the U.S. got rid of most of their actual Russia experts. So these were the guys that actually knew what was going on. They were experts in Russian history and culture, and just you know they could speak fluent mm-hmm. Russian, and they were they were experts. And it seems like they they just mm-hmm. got you know they all just got let go, and it's like okay, we don't need you anymore. And for the last. 20 plus years, it's been, um, the way he puts it is that every, every for every Russia, um, Ru- every Russia ex- expert has pretty much gotten either their PhD or their, their, um, their credentials by writing a book on how evil Putin is. And that's kind of the extent of the, yeah. <laughs> he might be, he might be, he might be slightly exaggerating, but that seems like the extent of what's going on. So, mm-hmm. so it's like, there's a, there's a complete ignorance of, you know, what you call and what, um, the, the the Russian security culture, and which this right. book gets into. Well, do, do you have any comment on that? On like on Scott uh, Ritter's take? I think, there, I, I think that uh, that I agree with the the the, the fact that um, the, the the problem is that the, these are people are not they don't they they um, they they know certain things about Russia, um, mm-hmm. but they don't really know the political culture. They have sort of caricature image of what the political culture is. And um, strategic culture, they're not particularly interested in us. It has to do with the military conflict, this sort of thing. Um, a big problem was that at the time the Soviet Union collapsed, there was within the field, it was sort of a reflection of the general American hubris within academia. And that was the idea, and the, you know, the idea of Fukuyama, end of history and so forth. 
this idea of transitology, that the whole world was basically transitioning from authoritarian rule to democratic rule and free markets. And this was the inevitable, inevitable and imminent outcome of uh, uh, world history. And so Russia was basically plugged into that model. And when it didn't work out that way, <laughs> because we basically, in my view, uh, the main causes to the expansion of NATO, though there are other causes, and the way that expansion of NATO interacts with the, the security vigilance culture that I'm trying to explain in the book, um, that led to a backlash. So that's essentially what the, the essentially the first problem was this, 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 this sort of hubristic methodology and in political science. Um, and that led to downplaying those who knew Russian culture well. Mm. By Russian, by culture, I don't mean necessarily the arts, though the arts reflect sort of political values and political beliefs and aspirations and so forth. But I mean, I mean precisely those sorts of things, political aspirations and, and so forth, the fear, <coughs> excuse me, attitudes, beliefs, uh, aspirations, uh, essentially. Um, and so uh, that led to a new kind of Russia specialist who was, you know, he, he was sort of a tech, he was, uh, highly technical in terms of political science methodologies and uh, this sort of thing. But having a kind of deep understanding of, um, of Russian culture and its implications uh, quickly declined within the field you know so you take a look you look at the you know a classic like uh james billington's the icon and the axe and these sorts of things that really give you a, a good orientation whether you agree with everything in the book is not really important but it gives you a good orientation a good starting point for trying to understand uh, where russians come from um <laughs> literally speaking and figuratively speaking so uh this is um uh you know very important because again you have to understand who you're dealing with, right? And, and uh, mm -hmm. Americans, we put someone into a, a certain box. If they don't fit into that box, then it's their fault and they're guilty and uh, they're not sufficiently democratic and so forth and so on. And when I say that, I'm not saying I don't, you know, Putin is clearly moving, you know, in a more authoritarian direction. In his first few years, he was a sort of soft authoritarian leader. Uh, in his very first years, I think he was hedging his bets as to where he wanted to go, whether he wanted to continue with democracy or start moving in a more authoritarian direction. And um, events on the eve of his coming to power in Serbia and um, continuing NATO expansion after he came to power uh, um, and the rejection sort of of, uh, or the lack of the, the, the lack of uh, bearing of any fruit from his um, assistance, his first his full throated support for the United States after 9-11 and then assistance in that regard only got met with more with more NATO expansion. And so these sorts of things, I mean, Russians have a very one part of the political culture. I mentioned this briefly in the book. It's really been written about very well by uh, Andrei Tsigankov. Is the idea is Russians have a very deep, sensitive, <laughs> a deep rooted scent and, and sensitive uh, sense of honor, right? If, if, if they feel they're being, being re dealt with with, with respect, and so forth, they can be worked with and deals can be made. Um, if they feel they're being betrayed, they're being lied to, they're being conned, uh, that's gonna backfire very, in a very drastic uh, way. And that's, we're also seeing that 
that now with the and, and going back again to the promise not to expand NATO one inch behind Germany, and now we're fighting over NATO and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So, well, and, the, and the result is, and the result is now the war, and this is a predictable outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I only had a chance to read a few chapters in your book, uh, Gordon. Uh, a couple of them that really struck me, um, and I think um, provides a, a prelude to most of the body of your of your new book, uh, was this idea that inside of the the kind of uh, socio political cultural DNA of Russians and Russian leadership um, is this mm-hmm. uh, e- extreme distrust um, born out of um, attacks and subversion and and lessons learned and the way you broke this down was very interesting you you kind of uh set up this um or uh, deline- delineated a, a cycle that russia seems to have gone through uh where where it's it's liberal and open gets attacked and then reverts back to more traditional uh russian mm-hmm. uh, values and i wonder if you can right. talk a bit about how how you've noticed that pattern emerging over history a little bit? Well, I just just doing a, a close reading of history. Um, when when people talk about uh, the zigs and zags of Russian history, they're usually referring to um, you know the shift between a more authoritarian regime and a, a liberalizing regime. But in fact, this had this occurs in in in, in relations with the West as well. And so, you know, we've seen, we've, we've, we've this pattern, you know, is, is virtually, it's uh, undeniable, right? We begin with, usually it begins with a period in which as a status quo, it may be author- typically a typical traditional authoritarian to one extent or another, a Russian form of rule. And this is not unusual throughout most of the world, even today, most regimes are authoritarian and we have good relations with lots of regimes that are authoritarian. Um, uh and they begin to take in um, certain Western influences. Those Western influences then lead to a liberalization. Uh, the liberalization proceeds, and then something happens in the West that eventually leads either directly because someone in the West is targeting Russia, for example, the time of troubles or the uh, smutha, as they called it in Russian, right? When the Poles basically with the Vatican's full-throated support uh, organized uh, uh, a uh, incursion, a military incursion, invasion, really um, a sort of first case hybrid regime in which they used basically a proxy force and propaganda and all uh, several different ways of, of trying to undermine the regime. Now, granted, uh, and this is connected to another key point is that, and this is connected to domestic politics, is that the opening for the polls in doing this was that there was a split inside Russia in which right there was infighting inside the court and the Tsarevich of uh, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, was killed. And all of a sudden in Poland appears this guy who claims that he is uh, actually the, the, he is Dmitry, uh, the Tsarevich, that he wasn't killed, that he survived. And then so the Russian, so the Poles decide that they're going to use this as a way, because he potentially has legitimacy to rule in Russia, right, if he is the Tsarevich to expand Catholicism into uh, Orthodox uh, territory. So they they give him, a, put him at the head of this uh, military force and they move in 
from Poland through, incidentally, Ukraine, <laughs> uh, and they move up Ukraine up up, up from the south, and uh, eventually takes takes power in Moscow. Um, quickly, the Muscovites get tired of him because they don't like all these foreigners and all these Catholics and all these Jesuits walking around Moscow. And uh, there's there are incidences with uh, uh, the wedding uh, <laughs> involving um, the uh, daughter of the person who organized this force. Uh, with Dimitri, and this uh, this was another step towards the Catholicization. He had uh, Dimitri had the, the false Dimitri, apparently false. There's a debate in Russian history and whether he was actually the Tsarevich or not. Uh, it's I, uh, I I didn't really want to get too bogged down in into that um, dispute because it's very complicated and has a long long history, um, and I can't really make up my mind. I, my my sense is that he's he's uh, he was a false Dimitri, but knows um and so this raises the issue of unity inside russia right when there's division inside russia foreigners can use that division right to further destabilize the situation make incursions make uh, military invasions right um and so from this point on you, you really begin to there's this, this linkage between domestic unity and um security vis-a-vis -vis the west and that cycle then continues. We see, you know, after the smuta, after the smuta, there's a period of reestablishing the old regime um, as best they can. Again, we see uh, more Western influences coming in in the uh, late 17th century. Those progress in the early 18th century, uh, leading to Peter the Great. Peter the Great goes into a massive Westernization program, um, and the result is a century later. Napoleon's invasion, right? Throughout the 18th century is the period of the Russian Enlightenment, which is the aftermath of Peter's initial massive reforms, which then deepen and expand throughout Russia uh, for the next century. And then the outcome is that the West has moved on to a new form <laughs> of what constitutes uh, liberalization. And it's actually not liberalization in the long term. It turns out to be Napoleon and a dictator. And he invades Russia. This leads to a backlash under Nicholas the First, right? And because after the Napoleon, after they kick Napoleon uh, out and they march him back to uh, Paris, and the Russians um, occupy Paris for a while, then they withdraw. They create the Congress of the, uh, the Vienna Congress of uh, Victors and the Holy Alliance to secure stability in Europe and to prevent any reemergence of uh, Napoleonic uh, like. Uh, uh, revolutionism and republicanism um, in, in quotes, republicanism, given that Napoleon was actually a dictator. Uh, and part of the officer corps um, that had been in the West became inspired what they, by what they had seen in France and they organized the Decemberist revolt. And, that, and that this is in, we're talking now 1825 after the uh, defeat of Napoleon. Um, there, there are various reasons why the revolt occurred, not just the fact that these officers had been uh, in the West, the people, the members of the aristocracy were tired of serfdom and, and various various other factors. Um, and uh, the Decemberists, these are these officers, so the, the, the members of the cream of the elite officer corps in St. Petersburg uh, undertake a revolt. They had, they had been planning and organizing a sort of democratic Republican movement um, for about 10 years or so. And uh, then there was a question when Alexander the First died, Alexander the First being the one who led the Russian army to defeat 
and European, other European armies to defeat Napoleon, died um, under sometimes considered mysterious ex ex circumstances when he went, traveled to the South, died. There are, there are rumors that exist to this day that he actually didn't die, that he actually uh, didn't want us to um, be the czar anymore and went to Siberia and, and became a uh, starets and wandered the forests. Uh, uh, and there's, there, there's some this is not, you know, there are some basis, this is not some, you know, crazy Russian <laughs> fantasy, there's some basis, in fact, for why this could have occurred, because when Napoleon was first being, uh, Alexander I was first being groomed to become the Tsar, um, uh, he told his uh, European teachers that he did not want to be the Tsar, and as soon as he could, he would uh, take the chance and move to Europe and find some nice quiet corner in Europe to retire. And then uh, when all he, he attempted to institute a constitution, right, liberal westernized reforms, and then Napoleon invades, mm. right? Uh, mm. Those who are supporting the reforms now get to be, be blamed that they're allies of Napoleon. <laughs> um, mm. Then the Decemberist Revolt, 1825, officer corps, uh, the officer corps, members of it want to establish a democratic regime. Alexander is dead. There's confusion as to who should. There's a long. I go into it in a little bit of detail in the book. There's a long, complicated uh, struggle and indecision about who should be the successor once the news comes to Saint Petersburg that Alexander the First has died. And because of that uncertainty in that period of about uh, ten days, two weeks, uh, the offer, these officers decide to make a move. Also, because they're beginning to be found out by the secret police, so they decide. Uh, to put uh, to send uh, to lead their their respective units onto the uh, central square in St. Petersburg and declare a constitutional government. And there's a conflict between the Tsar and Nicholas I crushes the uh, troops, and then that leads to a period of strong uh, conservatism, the so-called under the uh, under the so-called official nationality, under uh, sort of an, an official ideology based on uh, orthodoxy. Uh, autocracy and uh, nationality by nationality meaning uh, national tradition not not ethnicity not russian ethnicity is not some kind of a racist idea it's a not the idea of russian national tradition somewhat similar to what the putin's talking about um today as a counterbalance russia becoming a sort of counterbalance to uh the liberalism the liberalism in the united states that's become sort of a crazy version of cultural marxism <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, and um so this is another period of um, reversion back to the old tradition after a Russian invasion. And then we have, you know, we go back, to, then we can go into the Lenin, the German World War I, the revolution, the Germans funding Lenin, uh, <laughs> Lenin making a revolution, doesn't really turn out very well for Russia, that revolution, um, right? Uh, and then that leads us, you know, to World War II and Hitler and so forth and so on. Um, and so when the Cold War ends, by then there's a long record of Western invasions. You know, we have this idea that there's sort of when we discuss these things about, you know, Russia becoming part of the West and so forth and so on. And, you know, I support that idea. I would like to see Russia become part of the West because it would reduce uh, the, the potential for, con for conflict uh, on the Eurasian uh, landmass and uh, the historical conflict between the West and Russia. Uh, but usually in our minds, when we say that, and, and, and I do this too sometimes, and then I, you know, and then I catch myself or later I start reading, I read my own book <laughs> and I remember, you know, yeah, that this, 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 uh, this Western thing isn't as much as it's cracked up to be. And, and that's especially true for Russians, right? 
the West produced Hitler. The Russians didn't produce Hitler. Uh, the West produced Marxism and communism. Russia didn't produce Marxism and con communism. Uh, the West pro uh, produced uh, uh, the kind of sort of first nationalist experience under Napoleon that they that Napoleon called republicanism and democracy and equality and brotherhood. So why why wouldn't Russian uh, American Russians look at that and say, wait a second, you know this is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be when they come to us and they start saying, you know, do what we say, be like us, and then everything is going to be fine. There's, you know, they're in the back of their minds, there is this history. And Russians know their history very well. They love history. They're very much uh, the, the opposite of uh, in this way uh, to mm -hmm. Americans who don't know their history, are not interested in history. We're always looking to the future and we're concentrating on the present. They're looking at the past and interpreting the present through the past. Mm -hmm. um, uh and they know their history. Now, not all Russians, of course, many Russians have a distorted view. They exaggerate. Uh, they have a paranoid uh, view sometimes precisely because of this history. Uh, many have become paranoid. They exaggerated. Every, the West is out to get Russia and so forth and so on. The West is always out. The, the West in, in, in toto is out to, to get Russia, you know, and, you know, overlooking that there were conflicts inside the West. And usually it was one side that would end up causing a problem for Russia, not the entire West. And the, mm -hmm. the, the, the same party that was causing a problem for Russia was causing a problem for the others, uh, for, part, for, for elements in the West. So it's mm -hmm. a complicated thing. And, 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 and it's very easy to simply, it's very easy for demagogues in the West and in Russia to simplify all this and use it to create paranoia and re resentment um, far more than there should be. Rather than having an intelligent discussion about, you know, how history is complicated, yes, We've made mistakes. The Russians sometimes, quite often, overreact, <laughs> which I believe we're seeing now ever since 2014. And uh, well, this is the result. Now we have this mess. Well, you, one of the concepts that you get into in the introduction, I believe, is this this idea of cultural strains and what uh, we can call like uh, recessive cultural strains, and um, and then the phrase. Um, there's this sedimentiz sedimentization process and then this reactivation process. Mm -hmm. So what you see is some, right. some cultural strains will gain dominance in one period and kind of go dormant, and then conditions will change and mm -hmm. then they'll be reactivated. And it can go both ways, right? right. So this, these can be the, the Western strains or the anti-Western strains or the, or, the, right. um, like, or the Russian strains. Right. But Russia's in this right. interesting position in that... <clears throat> As you say, and and you're and you're not the only one. You quote quote others. Is that Russia? Um, a large part of Russia's um, identity and self identification is based on the West. It is in relation to the West, either with the West as the the anti other, or uh, or well, well as the the bad other, or the West as the source of its. It's traditions because you mentioned all of those bad, right. all those bad things that came from the West, like Hitler, like Marxism, etc. Right. But what else came from the West? Well, Orthodoxy came from the West, you know, the Christian right. tradition, right. Right. and um, right. and so so there's this there's this tension within the Russian psyche about the about creating a Russian identity that that you have to admit is in some ways fundamentally borrowed from the West, but on the other hand, 
you there's the there's the hard line that has to be drawn to say no this is russia and and um and then there's the the anti-western sentiment that comes and goes uh, with for well right, and right. as you write for good reason so um well a, and a couple other elements that, that contribute to this situation that you the, there's a few comment a few um short comments that you have in the in the the first chapter on um so-called um, you know, classic Russian autocracy and Russian imperialism. And, <laughs> and a few times um, you, you make the comment that, well, it's not so cut and dried and it's often exaggerated in the West, this idea of Russian imperialism and Russian autocracy. And that, well, actually, in, in a lot of cases, the, those, even those concepts were borrowed from the West. Um, right. I, want, I, I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit. Right. Uh, well, Peter the Great's idea of creating an empire was entirely by, borrowed uh, and and, the, and even the symbols uh, of the uh, of uh, the of imperial Russia were borrowed from um, uh, the idea of Rome. Um, not so much as Rome as the uh, not in the religious sense of the idea, which is also relevant here, is the idea of the Third Rome. That right, right. Once that's after Rome and Constantinople fell, Moscow became the Third Rome. But that's often um, weaponized by people in the West to say, well, you see. Uh, that's the idea that the Russians are going to rule the world, that they're the new Romes and they're going to rule the world. That was purely a religious idea uh, when it first um, came into uh, view in the in the 16th uh, century. It initially was, uh, it, it became a more politicized idea uh, in, in the 19th century, uh, transformed by the, by the Slavophiles. Um, so... But the idea of a, a sort of imperial state didn't necessarily mean, um, uh, certainly didn't mean any expansion into Europe, right? But what it did mean is that Russia would now become part of, be a player in that big European great game, right? Well, we would play, we would do what those Europeans do, right? We would seek uh, to build our empire. Russians went uh, east, right, into Siberia and, and to the Far East, the way European powers went to the South and went to the West, into the Americas, and so forth and so on. Nothing unique here, and that was borrowed from um, uh, the West. So if you look at what, where, where the, <clears throat> the only time you can really, <clears throat> excuse me, talk about, except for the case of Poland, um, the only time you can really talk about um, uh, any basically Poland is the only example I can really think of, of a case where, you know, after Peter the Great, there was um, an attempt by the Russians to seize territory that you could call European. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, they gave the Poles a certain amount of autonomy. Um, even Alexander the first even gave the Poles uh, uh, their own constitution and let the Sim continue to uh, sit and so forth. Uh, same thing here, same thing in Finland. Finland had greater autonomy um, when it was part of the empire. But you don't see uh, attempts by Russia to move in and seize Germany, to seize, uh, say, the Czech lands, or to uh, seize Romania, or to go, no less to go to France. They go to France to defeat Napoleon, they leave. <laughs> and with the other European powers, they set up a new system to make sure that uh, a Napoleon episode doesn't repeat itself. Um, so they're really behaving like other European powers. There's really, and if you look at the case of um, uh, Napoleon in the aftermath, the Russians play a very, very positive role that's really in many ways uh, hard to find 
cases, many cases, you know, the, the other example would be when the United States uh, uh, defeats Japan and Germany and, and basically helps them get back on their feet. Of course, they're doing that um, similar to the Russians. The Russians were doing that to prevent a, the rise of a new Napoleon. We were doing that as a buffer against uh, communism, right? Uh, <laughs> it's nothing unusual about the way the Russians conduct, conducted themselves on, uh, on the international stage. The only exception is under Soviet power. When they, and of course, again, Lenin <laughs> is the fruit of Marxism and Marxist, Marxism grew uh, appeared in uh, Europe. And that was the idea of creating a world communist system, right? And so for most of the a good part of the Soviet period, there was this idea that, yes, we're going to spread communism. So sorry, by the 70s and by the, uh, certainly by, I'd say by the 70s, um, that be, the belief in that idea began to seriously wane and Soviet Union became sort of a typical great power. Uh, some aspirations, maybe if the opportunity arrives, right? Uh, we can certainly in certain places try to promote revolution, but the idea that any, some kind of imminent world revolution uh, uh, that would bring a communist world government that was um, uh, seriously feasible, was feasible at least in any kind of midterm um, was sort of given up on. Uh, and that, therefore, you have detente, and you have, even under Khrushchev, you have peaceful coexistence, and he tries to um, expand revolution into the third world. But in, generally speaking, you don't see there. Sure, they funded parties, for example, in Europe, and so so forth, and so on. So the, the dream sort of remained, but it didn't become the main driver, really, or the only driver. Let's put it that way: of Soviet foreign policy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really not, you know, the Soviet case. The Soviet era is an aberration in Russian history. Right, it was a complete overthrow of everything that had come before <laughs> um, nineteen seventeen in Russia. So it doesn't really make for a good example of so so called uh, so, so some kind of inherent Russian imperialism um, mm -hmm. that can't be shaken. Um, that's any different from any Western imperialism. I don't see the difference between what we did in in the West in any here in the United States and what the Russians did in their East in Siberia and so forth. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I haven't I, actually. It's something I've always wanted to do research and. And look at the the consequences for the indigenous peoples, and do a comparative a comparison, and see which side was more brutal. Um, there probably has been something written on that. I just haven't gone around to researching it, but it would be would be an interesting to thing to look at. And so, you know, even the idea of getting involved in uh, I, I already forgot uh, uh, which war it was, um, a major war in Europe. The Swedes suggested it to the uh, to the Russians. Um, the the um, imperial powers were constantly trying to draw Russian, Russia into when they were a second tier power, draw Russian into their alliances uh, when they were when they were alliances battling each other in Europe, for example, before the, in, in the pre-Napoleon War era and so on. So, um, again, <laughs> what what here is uh, particularly unique about Russian international behavior? Uh, I don't I, I just I don't see it. Don't see it. Well, what yeah, you we just hear, said we about you're about Russian. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay. No, I, well, don't, I don't want to repeat myself. Yeah. I, I just I, I was glad you you um, you just uh, mentioned how Soviet Russia was a bit of an anomaly uh, in in the context mm -hmm. of its mm -hmm. history. Uh, I think that that's mm -hmm. a great point. And um, and if anything, the Russians themselves uh, were the hardest to suffer from it, and and I dare say that it's still part of their cultural memory, um, mm -hmm. and and who they are now is in great part I think a response to 
uh, how you know how they experienced life under uh, the Soviet uh, regime. And um, bringing things a little more uh, current, uh, Gordon, you you mentioned at the very top of the show, um, you know. Putin's uh, early on in his uh, presidency reaching out to the U.S. in support after uh, the tragedy of 9-11. And uh, it was only a few years later that he also reached out, from what we know, uh, to the Bush White House um, in an attempt to receive some assistance or help uh, in dealing with uh, terrorism coming out of Chechnya, I believe. And, and from what I understand, he was rebuffed, uh, or rather they didn't even respond. And so to me, that, that is very early on in his particular history uh, and experience of the US, um, a kind of uh, experience that um, taught him something about how he can trust or not trust the West with with very serious security issues that Russia was dealing with at the time. Well, there was co there was some cooperation. I don't know the particular episode that you're talking about. Um, it's probably I just did somehow missed it, but but there was cooperation um, uh, in terrorism after after nine eleven. However, Putin now has been saying, and it's not clear sometimes which period he's talking about, whether he's talking about before he was president, the first Chechen war or the second Chechen war, and then the period of the, 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 the North Caucasus jihad, jihadism and the Caucasus Emirate and so forth. But he mm -hmm. says that the American intelligence was actually helping uh, okay. the uh, jihadists. And he's made that statement at least twice. The first time he said that was about so it's even worse than what you're describing, if that's true. And as far as I know, no, Bush, um, Bush never came out and said that he, uh, uh, that's a lie, that Putin was lying, that that uh, the U.S. intelligence was helping the Chechens. He's never denied, Bush never denied that, as far as I know. Um, uh, and even more recently, Putin said that, I think it was within the last few months, maybe even within a month, he, he made that point again. So, mm -hmm. uh and um, I wouldn't doubt that in the, in the least, unfortunately, uh, I wouldn't doubt that. Now, what kind of help they were getting and how, how uh, the volume of assistance uh, and so forth and so on, I don't think would, would have been greatly significant. We do know that, for example, that even during the, the first war, the same groups that were raising money for uh, jihadists in um, uh, Afghanistan and other places were also in the United States. There were organization, front organizations out this tied to Saudi Arabia and other um, the Muslim Brotherhood and so forth and so on that were raising money in the United States for various jihadi movements and that included uh, for jihadis in in Chechnya and in fact the so-called the so-called twentieth the twentieth or nineteenth twentieth I believe um, nine eleven bomber um, was uh, training on how to fly I believe it was in Minnesota. And the FBI got wind of him and they had some suspicions and they were going to um, detain him. And if they had, the whole plot would have been uncovered. And the reason that, that uh, at least one report is that one of the reasons that they decided not to um, move against this guy was that his only connection to the global jihad was with Mr. Hatab. And Hatab was a close associate of Basayev, who was the one of the leaders of the Chechen Republic of Echkaria, which was half jihadi at that time and half 
radically extremist Chechen nationalists, um, and they just and they decided that well, there's real no con really no connection between the Chechen Republic of Chechnya and jihadism, so we won't check up on this guy. And of course, that was a gross mistake because in fact there were many jihadis, including Hatab, who was very close. Uh, I wouldn't say very close, but he was close to uh, Osama bin Laden when he was killed. Osama bin Laden wrote an obituary for him. So, and we always heard, we heard for, for years and years and years that this, the Chechens had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. Qaeda. Well, I remember going to a conference uh, and there was this guy, what was his name? Uh, Williams. And he actually was a consultant for the CIA in Afghanistan. And his big thing was that he said, well, I traveled around Afghanistan and I never met, you know, one Chechen and everyone I spoke to um, said that there were no Chechens and other people who were saying other things, but he was saying that and not surprisingly, people in DC gave him <laughs> the front page and not others. And uh, I remember him writing and then stating at a conference I was at that the, the, the Chechen, and this is already 2012, and he's saying that the Chechens are um, uh, closer to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson than they are to Al-Qaeda. And I, you know, I almost fell off my chair <laughs> and I said, uh, I rose my hand, uh, raised my hand and said to him, you know, I'm, I look at those Chechen sites and the, the Caucasus Emirates sites every day and Chechen is the Republic earlier, the Chechen Republic of Chikaria's websites. And, you know, I have not seen one video of a speech from George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, but I've seen loads of them by bin Laden and Moctisi, who was a leading ideologist, jihadism at the time, they're all over the place. That's what the whole site mm -hmm. is consists of, sites, uh, videos of their own people or the global jihadists. You know, it's, 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 it's a sad thing. It, it's really a sad, sad thing to look at the way Washington handles these issues because it's, it's basically anything, anything is put through the prism of being um, anti-Russian, basically. Mm -hmm. So the, the view that the, there was a jihad in Russia was played down because... Well, maybe we can use this against the Russians, and the Russians anyway are brutal, and these people want freedom. So why should we turn against them? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you know, if you, and then if you take the Putin's claim at face value that they were getting assistance from the United States from the CIA, well, that makes even more clear why people like uh, Williams were getting uh, the front page and, and so forth. Hard to tell mm -hmm. how well that's coordinated and no part of one effort, but certainly get be excluded right well and this is this is all part of this pattern that you talk about in the book and the effect of which is that in russian eyes these western institutions and uh and methods are discredited so and there's this mm -hmm. this like this big irony involved and you've already you, in your in your rundown of the kind of the chronology of of how, how this applies in, you know, all this last hundreds of years of Russian history, you kind of show this, uh, or showed this today, that even when the, even when Russians are liberalizing and westernizing, then it's, then there will be uh, a major Western intervention of some sort. And then um, mm. Russia kind of rebuilds after a destruction like the, the, time of troubles and then looks back and and just says well look and, and well look at what the west said and what and what they gave us mm -hmm. it's like why would we copy you guys why would we do this um right. that essentially through the west's attempts to to reform russia 
um, you know, at the either at the you know the the point of a bayonet or the the barrel of a gun, then um, then they're surprised when when there's resistance, right? Right, and this leads this leads to the whole problem of um, the charges, you know, of collusion that you know people mm -hmm. who are for democracy or for liberalism or for free markets in Russia are. And Putin just made another reference to the fifth column again about two weeks ago, you know, that these people are members of fifth column and they're working for uh, Western intelligence and um, and so forth and so on. So it completely undermines um, uh, those in Russia who actually do want to um, become um, a state that's uh, not that's liberal, but in the classical liberal sense, not what we call liberalism today, which is basically lost its mind. But um uh, uh, and the other uh, issue is that um, there begins to be this reaction towards even just Western influence, um, not not just in the not suspicion of the persons themselves who carry the influence, but the actual influence itself. You know, the, the, this idea it's in the political science, uh, ontological security, right? That the uh, our Russian identity and our Russian tradition is now being undermined again by those Westerners who brought us you know, <laughs> Napoleon and uh, the Decemberist revolt and the Smuta and Hitler and so forth and so on. And we should stick to our Russian traditions. And that means, you know, no liberalism, no democracy. Uh, that, that Democracy and liberalism, they're just fronts uh, for, for uh, military expansion and economic expansion and subjugation of Russia and so forth and so on. Um, and they think that this is the, the you know, this is the this is the extent of the way people think in Washington, and of course it's an exaggeration. There are many people in Washington who indeed use the idea of democracy, and unfortunately, I think in the last twenty years it's even become more so. They use democracy and so forth and these ideas of human rights, but their real their real goal is is for economic expansion and NATO expansion and so forth and so on. Uh, I think that pattern has become worse over the last twenty years twenty years or so. Um, but even back in the previous periods, um, there was a tendency to exaggerate this. And, and of course, if you're a very authoritarian leader, if you're someone like uh, a Stalin, for example, then you can really wrap up the exaggeration and the lying uh, if you need to, for whatever your domestic purposes may be. Uh, and so this becomes a very hand handy tool in the, uh, <laughs> in the toolbox, in the playbook. <laughs> as they like yes. to say nowadays the russian the, playbook uh, of the uh, right the russian playbook of the authoritarian uh, leader who wants to crack down right he can just go back to this old scenario uh and say we have to you know uh go back to uh the dominant dominant uh strains in our political culture the traditional ones and throw these recessive recessive ones that always manage to cause us so much trouble every time they start to percolate up uh, up from the uh, sediment <laughs> and start to influence us again. So, and you know, we and, and see the same pattern in the post-Soviet period, right? Period of liberalization, perestroika. Uh, I remember being in Moscow in, in, in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, and people just loved Americans. I mean, it was just, uh, uh, they all, everybody wanted to go meet an American and associate with an American. Uh, God, how that has changed. What a difference now. 30 years later, and uh, quite honestly, someone who likes to go to Russia, I don't even know if I want to go there again. I'm worried about my own uh, security, quite honestly, because no reason why Russians aren't going to radicalize as you see what's going on in the West in terms of 
attitudes towards Russians, that there's going to be a backlash in Russia too. Uh, to the, how great that will be, hard to tell. Mm-hmm. So it's all very uh, disconcerting, to say the least. And it's, it's, it's the old pattern is repeating. We're just in a new, a new, uh, a new again, Simburgskian uh, cycle uh, is is playing out, and we're back into the tradition, the tr- traditional phase. Uh, mm-hmm. How and when um, they'll be a return to some kind of uh, uh, softening of relations, and then and then some kind of uh, softening of the internal regime, and when awfully hard to tell. But I can't see, you know, unless this war goes very very badly, and even then the support for Democrat, there is no really indigenous now strong support for democratization and free free markets. So it's going to take a decade or two of um limited growth under a more authoritarian centralized economy and other problems that might be caused by Putin's overreaction that may lead to another reconsideration and uh, liberalization and so forth a lot defeat in the war and so forth but even the defeat in the war at this point could lead to worse disaster because someone much worse than Putin could actually come mm-hmm. come to power uh, in reaction to some kind of defeat in this war mm-hmm. so there's no, there's no democrat democrat waiting in the wings with <laughs> any support either within the regime or in society to come to power and that includes mr navalny who is not mm-hmm. particularly well you know you look at his his approval ratings are not uh, not very high so uh, that's one th- i wanted to mention navalny if things yeah i wanted to mention navalny now, because maybe that could um, change things oh, go ahead sorry go ahead go ahead no sorry go ahead so, so uh, you brought up Navalny. I was going to bring him up because, um, <clears throat> again, I think that uh, well, he's got he's got good PR in the West, of course, and I think mm-hmm. that a lot of Westerners get the impression that he's well, well. If I could, if I could try to summarize the Western impression, it's that here's this um, mm-hmm. this dissident freedom fighter fighting the system, um, you know. Or, or good ordinary freedom wanting um, Russians um, support this guy, and if only you know, it, it would just be the the dream of a lot of of Western Russian watchers if if Navalny were to be able to take down the regime and become president. And mm-hmm. but I think what a lot of people don't re- well, first of all, the, your book gives a context for how to how to understand Navalny and how 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 to understand how Russians understand Navalny because that's not the that's not the reality like you said in mm-hmm. in Russia actually Navalny isn't very popular he is popular yeah. among a small percentage of people and a lot of like uh, you know a sig- a significant number but still a small number of like young young mm-hmm. liberal Russians but when you look mm-hmm. at actual um when you talk to Russians and when you, you look at Russian opinion polls and um, he's not popular and the book kind of explains mm-hmm. why that is. And, mm-hmm. and Navalny, it's almost like, it's weird watching this, watching the last 10 years play out because it's almost like, it's almost like someone um, read a, a version of your book before it was written or, you know, was looking down on history and saw these patterns and said, how can we recreate everything totally according to type? Mm-hmm. And so that everything mm-hmm. locks into place because, well, what does Navalny do? Um, well, he, he has ties to the West. He flies to the West. He has obvious mm-hmm. interactions to who knows what degree with Western intelligence agents. You know, he's, he is the, the epitome of, uh, uh, of the kind of trope or, or archetype of the Russian colluder that, 
right. that appears throughout throughout history, like in your book. Like who was the who was right. one of the first ones in in the first cycle? Was it? Um, um, uh, Kurbsky, I can't remember uh, under Ivan Grozny. Kurbsky, yeah. and of course, uh, yeah. the false Dimitri essentially was a colluder, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Kurbsky, who was um, uh, Ivan Grozny's uh, main uh, main opponent, and then Dimitri is in a sense a colluder, and then I, I designated Peter the Great as sort of a ontological colluder, and that he wanted to you know fully west westernize Russian culture and mm-hmm. uh, uh, society. Uh, well, it, it, technology and so forth and so on. Not so much uh, society, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah, society. Um, you know, and 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 there and of course Zarevich, the Zarevich, uh, Peter's son, who was supposed to succeed Peter, who uh, went over to the side of the uh, the Austrians, right? So it's um, a whole history of, of of colluders. The problem with Navalny is that, um, yeah, he, as you said, he completely openly. The best thing that any um, opposition leader who wants to create a democratic system uh, would be to limit his his ties to the West and only propose things um, propose the Western model in um, in form Russian terms in, in in content in, in content but not in form <laughs> right um, mm-hmm. uh, minimize his traveling abroad uh, to the West. I'm uh, not saying not go at all. I'm not saying not mention the West at all, but, you know, minimize all those things and try to appeal to everyday Russian Russian um, issues and also look back on Russian history and try to explain, because there is an interpretation of history that in Russian history uh, that's worth writing a book about, is that, in fact, the, the, the turn away from liberalism every, every time for Russia has actually been a disaster. <laughs> it's, it's led to very bad things. Unfortunately, one of the main causes of their turning away from from Western models is the West itself. That's the deep irony. That's the Russian dilemma, right? Uh, um, and so, and that's why you often hear Russians say, "We want to borrow from the West, but we don't want to. We don't want to become like the West, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's probably a good approach for any opposition leader who wants to really um, create a republican system, small r. Uh, in Russia, and in a, in a some something some semblance of uh, uh, free market capitalism, and some kind of at least a semi-federative uh, system, though that's that's certainly not a prerequisite um, <laughs> for uh, America to have good relations with Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another issue that I, that I always uh, like to bring up is that you know the American assumption is and claim is and belief, and I tend to. I tend to to, to uh, believe it myself is that ca- uh, Republican systems and market systems are more efficient and they're more just and so forth and so on. Um, um, if we're co- if we're competing in the world, then it's our to it's our to, 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 to overstate the case. It's to our advantage that we would be the only <laughs> Republican system and free market system in the world, right? Because we would have the most effective system. So what do I care if Russia? Has an effective system or not? I don't care. It's actually to my benefit that Russia doesn't have an effective system. So why alienate Russia, turn it into an enemy, right? In order to make them more effective, it's there's no <laughs> logic to the strategy. It's, it's, it's an anti-strategy. It's a, it's shooting yourself in the foot. You know, yeah. rather than having an ineffective competitor, we made an enemy, right? Uh, 
and uh, you know, thank God that they don't have a <laughs> with their with with the with the extent of anti-Western attitude now and anti-American attitude. Thank God they don't have a very effective system because they'd be that much more powerful. Now, they certainly do have an, an effective system enough to cause us a hell of a lot of problems, right? But uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not it's not a, it's not China. Right. And it's uh, it's not the uh, old United States or even the present day United States in, in decline. Um, and Russia has uh, has, you know, of course, enormous potential. If it hadn't been for the 1917 revolution, Russia would probably be the 20th century would have been the Russian century for uh, very, very likely. But it didn't turn out that way. Well, I, I think Gordon, part of the part of the answer there is that uh, the the. U.S. Um, has become so financialized. It's become so much of mm-hmm. a, a monopoly capitalist uh, military power projecting, you know, this hyper, you know, uh, aggressive force in, in all spheres, mm-hmm. political and, and economic mm-hmm. all across the world that, that you know, the, 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 the kind of honest competition that, that you would... Um, uh, so identify in Russia um, correctly mm-hmm. is is like it, it's a it's it's not only a, a threat from a from an honest competitive point of view, but it's also mm-hmm. a whole mm-hmm. it's a whole um, it's just got more character and more integrity uh, in in its transactions mm-hmm. with the world, and so that that mm-hmm. too in some ways has to be suppressed and and. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not allowed to exist. Um, but I, yeah. I did have a question for you, uh, kind of connected to Navalny, because um, mm-hmm. like we have we have Navalny and and uh, Pussy Riot and all of these various mm-hmm. uh, Western exports to to Russia that seek to kind of subvert mm-hmm. its its culture and its politics in some sense. And then you have guys. I forget what his name is, but he was. Um, he recently stepped down, and this was a long time. Chubais? Was it Chubais? Yes. He was the chairman of sustainability. Oh, yes. who, who just left the country. Who, yes. He just left. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, Chubais, yeah. And so uh, there, there seems to be, a, if, not a, if not exactly a fifth column, but at least mm-hmm. a, um, a strain of uh, Atlanticists, pro-Western mm-hmm. uh, Russian politicians who who don't see the dangers in the way that Putin and, and a great deal of his team see the dangers, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have any comments about that, that contingent within the, the Russian government? Yeah, they're, they're, they're a group of, uh, we call, they call them uh, the, system, the system liberals. You know, people like Alexei Kudrin, um, Shubais formerly, although he was head of nanotechnology, it was a state company, but it wasn't a, uh, a state uh, body, um, uh, and, and, and there are others at the head of uh, uh, Sberbank, the, the Russian, the, the Russian Savings Bank, the largest, the, the largest uh, uh, bank outside of the of the central bank. Um, German Graf and others. These people are, you know, sort of system liberals who have been, and even someone like Abramovich, who is an oligarch, uh, but really doesn't hold any official post. He's sort of, a, I guess, a system liberal within the elite rather than within the state, and um, but connected to the state, obviously. Uh, and these people, 
basically they're certainly economic liberals and they, they, they support the idea of the free market and so forth and so on. Um, and they would probably be more politically liberal than certain, certainly Putin would be. Uh, but they simply have no, they, they have no political influence whatsoever within the system. They do have economic influence and probably quite a bit. I think Putin really listens to, um, definitely Kudrin. He listens to Kudrin without doubt. Uh, and he probably listens to Nababulin, the head of the central bank, uh, and some other people. She's also a system liberal. Um, and, um, so he's, Putin's, um, I think has really grown as a person uh, who understands economics and, and how to use the economy to defend Russian interests and so forth and to protect the uh, Russian economy from uh, Western meddling, maybe probably overdoing it, but for understandable reasons, given our behavior over the last 20 years. Um, I wanted to come back to your point about the, you know, the are uh, creating basically a one world financial system, which we basically control uh, and so forth. And, and this is really the problem is that ever since the Cold War, we've established a hegemony in so many different areas. And rather than trying to classic uh, manifestation of this was the famous, you know, Newland, uh, who was Victoria Newland, who was caught uh, on a tape telephone call saying F the EU, right? This is the mm -hmm. classic, you know, imperial hubris, right? And and we've operated in a way for the last uh, uh, 20, certainly 20 years, maybe even, and even 30 years since the end of the Cold War, seemed to get to have gained steam the farther we got from the end of the Cold War. Um, and seems to be gaining steam to this day of this sort of hubristic um, behavior on the on the world stage, which on the one hand discredits everything about republicanism and free markets by trying to create a hegemonic system in which we control everything. Mm -hmm. And now at the same time at home is crushing freedom of speech and so forth and so on. And yet goes abroad and claims it's defending republicanism right. and free markets. Um, this is the height of hypocrisy and it's going to destroy our reputation to what, what extent <laughs> reputation exists throughout the world uh, besides uh, outside of Western Europe. What, what remains of our reputation will be completely destroyed. And you're seeing this already in um, the effort uh, to impose sanctions in various countries not going along, for example, Brazil and South Africa and India. These are major countries. These aren't uh, rinky-dink. Uh, this is not Austria. And <laughs> this is not Luxembourg and Belgium. These are major economic uh, uh, powers. And um, they're not going along with the, with the game. And part of it is because of this behavior over the last 20 or 30 years. And Russia's just made itself sort of the lightning rod. Uh, um, and given the Russian <laughs> the Russian character and so forth, it doesn't surprise me. They would be the first ones that, that, just, that would just uh, revolt. Russians are very um, sort of, even when they're even being very compliant, they're also internally, they're very kind of um, revolutionary. Gleb Pavlovsky, who's a, uh, a Russian political scientist who... In the early 90s was uh you know pro perestroika and pro yeltsin and then when putin came to power he was he joined putin and he became very anti-liberal and anti-perestroika uh then he was removed from the kremlin and now he's very anti-putin uh, he, he he writes very interesting stuff and, and speaks very interesting stuff and has some very really good insights and he says that you know russians don't like to be part of the crowd <laughs> they just don't that sounds counterintuitive right because we think of russians as um uh, you know, collectivists and so forth and so on. And in my new, I'm writing a new book about what I'm calling sellousness, which is a wholeness, the idea the Russians seek wholeness. 
but in, 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 in reality, in relation to other, to certain circumstances, Russians don't really want to be part of the crowd. They have a strong sense of their own sovereignty and their own will to um, create their own, their own life, right? And to defend their own traditions. And um, when they see a tradition that, that runs counter to that and they see everyone following it, their natural inclination was to say, no, we don't want to be part of that. And when the people, the, the center of that, uh, that global tendency was at the same time damaging Russian national security interests by expanding NATO to Russia's borders and having violated a promise and violated a sense of Russian honor. Uh, you put it all together, it's just, just, it's, just, it's a time bomb. It's all a big time bomb that's now exploding in Ukraine. And what's particularly disconcerting, I've probably gotten off too far into the contemporary issues, but um, what's particularly disconcerting is you see throughout this crisis, there's no give on either side. Right. You see the West for every escalation, you know, first, we're not going to buy oil and gas. Now we're going to Russians are going to demand that the oil and gas be paid, be paid for in rubles. Uh, uh, all that seems to be actually haven't been somewhat overstated, according to something I just read, but it needs to be checked. Um, but you basically see a constant escalation at the supplying of weapons to the Ukrainians, the, the, the escalation in rhetoric on the both sides, on both sides, especially on the part of the West. Um, um, this is extremely disconcerting because it's the type of thing, you know, basically we pushed Putin to the point where he made what I consider to be a mistake of going into Ukraine uh, in the way he did in a general um, general way. Uh, though that should be a caveat should be put on that, right? Because um, uh, we don't really know right now what the original intent was uh, of going in. Um, one theory is that all the activity going on in the north around Kiev and Kharkov is a is a is a fainting is a faking um, expedition, right? When the real thing is they want to expand in the southeast and they want to take Don, they want to take uh, Luhansk and Donetsk and maybe uh, parts of Nova Nova Russia. And by putting um, an invading force in the north, and they draw they make sure that the Ukrainian army could not put all their eggs in one basket in the mm -hmm. south. Countering mm -hmm. that idea would be, well, they could have just loaded up troops on the border between Ukraine and Belarus if they wanted to achieve that, right? Maintain the threat there to the North without, without actually going in and having to you know, kill people, which escalates the situation. So I have, I have a lot of, I have criticism, just as I criticized Putin for annexing Crimea uh, in um, 2014, uh, because I thought it was a, a, too much of an escalation. I think he could have done something much more uh, that would have been much more PR savvy uh, and would have actually done a much better job of uh, keeping people in the West on, on his side. Um, and I think he could have limited his options here as well. There are a whole host of options he could have taken um, uh, in the present situation to intensify the threat that he was posing to get people to talk without them moving in and starting a war, which means people get killed. Um, he could have massed troops increased the number of troops in Kaliningrad, could have massed troops in Crimea, could have massed troops and created a permanent base on the border with Ukraine at Don, in Donbass. Um, all sorts of things he could have done to drive the message home uh, without invading first. He could have held the, you know, the, 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 the option of invasion in his back pocket. The caveat to all that is, because <laughs> I, I, I'm someone who likes to look at all the options. I don't believe that there are, you know, these people who come to you and say, well, I have all the answers and this is precisely how it worked. And this is what Putin was thinking and so forth and so on. Uh, 
I think he leaves his options open and there are still a lot of options on the table. And when he went into this, I'm sure he tried to keep some um, options open. Um, the caveat uh, to that is that, you know, even if he takes, say, Don Bas, or even though even over all of so-called Nova Russia, the, the entire southeast, and takes the entire Black Sea and Azov coast all the way up to Odessa and so forth, he's going to be faced with the same exact problem he had. He's going to have the Ukrainian, Ukrainian army just over some kind of a contact line or a border or whatever. Um, the situation in Ukraine is going to be, could very easily be gravely destabilized. We could uh, see something, it, doesn't have, it may not get this bad, there may be something, you know, a small scale version of what we saw in Iraq and Syria. The Zelensky regime melts down. There are just different neo-fascist groups and oligarchic groups with their own armies and um, uh, fighting ensues and you have various uh, groups fighting in Ukraine amongst themselves. Since there's no central government, there may not be any central control over what these people do on the border with uh, Nova Russia, Donbass, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that could lead to same kind of, you know, occasional sniping, sending artillery, mortar rounds and killing civilians. And now Putin's again faced with the same dilemma. Only he's pushed, he's, he's already pushed in farther. He's already alienated the West even more. And now he's still faced with the same darn dilemma. Right? He's still, still got the Ukrainians over there sniping and firing away. Mm -hmm. And then the whole issue, then we get the whole issue of the decision-making process because there was a recent report. And, you know, of course, nowadays we have to be very suspicious of anything the U.S. intel tells us about their <laughs> <laughs> analysis. But there was a recent uh, report published in which they said that according to their analysis and information, wherever that, whatever that might be, Putin made his decision to invade very late. In other words, he wasn't planning all along when he was massing all those troops, which basically was my argument. I didn't think he was going to invade on any massive scale. I thought he would declare the independence of Donbass, maybe, if the if he let, I thought the, the, the negotiations would go on for uh, some time, at least another month or two. And then maybe if there was no progress, he would say, OK, I'm going to annex Donbass. But that would leave him with the same problem I described, I described with him, described with you before, uh, to you before, right? Um, in this case, they're saying in, that he made his decision at the last minute. And so if you look at, um, I was looking at the OSCE reports on the firing back and forth between the Ukrainian army and the, and the neo-fascist dominated Nats battalions on the one side and the DNR and the LNR, uh, the Donbass forces on the other side. And on February 18th, there was a major, major escalation of firing from the Ukrainian side on Donbass. Uh, forget the exact scale of the, uh, but it was something like uh, the amount of firing in one night equal to a month or several previous months. Yeah. Yep. And shortly after that, Zelensky made his um, foolish statement about, well, maybe we should consider about, we should consider just abandoning, abandoning the 1994 Budapest, which was code for, we should think about acquiring nuclear weapons. Nukes. Mm -hmm. And then if you add the fact that there are uh, nuclear materials in Ukraine, you have the potential of, an, of a dirty bomb. Uh, so you put all that together, and that may have been the cow's belly that kind of finally Putin said, well, okay, that's enough. No one, these, these people do not want to negotiate. The West yes. isn't making them negotiate. Um, so we're going to just go in. That may have been the uh, thing. Now they're claiming, the Russians, of course, are claiming that they have found evidence that the 
uh, Donbas forces, the, uh, the Ukrainian forces, excuse me, were planning to invade one. Today, they mentioned a date of February 28th. Earlier, the date was March 8th. Now that could be that could be disinformation propaganda. They they promised today that they were going to show documents. So if they show us documents, then we can then we can make our decision whether that's true or not. But even without that, you know, uh, of course they wouldn't have known that before. They they would have they found that out after they invaded and got their hands on documents, supposedly. Uh, but even with that, you know, given eight years of no no progress on Minsk, and there was also a statement. In that period that I described, uh, February 18th, and there of a, a high-ranking official of, of Ukraine, I forget which one it was, there's no way we're ever going to fulfill Minsk. So basically, threw mm-hmm. Minsk in the garbage. So that meant negotiating from scratch uh, in a period when Putin was trying to accomplish quite the opposite. He was trying to get these guys to begin to fulfill Minsk, and instead they're throwing it in the garbage. They're increasing the <laughs> violence yeah. along the contact line, and Zelensky's mm-hmm. talking about getting nuclear weapons. You know, Doing so the opposite. this also, if either, you know, uh, I might add to my suspicion, I'm not, I haven't studied it closely. I have an ink, uh, an inkling, uh, a, a nagging suspicion that the Ukrainians are very much like the Russians, right? They're stubborn too. They have their own sense of honor. And you got two peoples now who are facing each other who are just not going to give in. That's what really concerns me. But these guys, uh, just like the Russians, they're not going to back down. And you have two sides that are ready to go to the death to win. Right. And this is extremely if this is if I'm if that's an accurate analysis, we're in a very dangerous situation because at the same time you have, you know, nuclear powers and a potential nuclear confrontation um, standing over this, uh, you know, these basically proxy forces. Right. Uh, so it's a very, very very dangerous uh, situation, I think, uh, all in all. And um, deeply concerned. I don't see the other problem is I don't see a way out. Maybe you want to give a question. I'm going on too long. The other thing is I don't <laughs> see a way out for Putin going back, to, going back to what I said before about, you know, extending the line. Every time he extends the line mm-hmm. forward, he still may be faced with um, firing coming from the other side, depending on the ability of Zelensky to control his forces on the other side, assuming Zelensky is still alive, which, mm-hmm. you know, there are many people in the Nets battalions who would like to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, or the Russians could kill him intentionally or accidentally. Uh, and then you have chaos. So it's a very, uh, it, this is situation is so explosive. We are so close to, uh, to the end <laughs> that it's, uh, we really uh, and 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 then this disturbs me that the, the, you don't see any effort as far as there's no public evidence of it. Maybe there's behind the scenes effort of Washington making any attempt to sort of nudge the direct the Ukrainians in the direction of making more compromises and trying to main contact mm-hmm. with Putin to talk to him. I think that would change. I think that would really maybe it won't change anything anymore. Maybe it's too late for that. Yeah. But if. Yeah. Um, if after the invasion occurred, immediately after the invasion occurred, we had tried to keep our lines open to both sides and tried to encourage a ceasefire rather than saying, well, no, we're just going to incre- we're just going to arm the Ukrainians and cut off all ties with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what an escalation. But you know what, Gordon, the, the lines have been open for a very long time. The problem is there has never been any credible a- action uh, from, a, from Washington in response. Breakdown in trust, right? I was reading. I wanted to bring this up. I was. Right. Or did you have a point that you wanted to make in addition Just to that? that? Okay. Yeah. 
I, I mentioned this on a previous show, but I, I recently read a new book um, on, uh, totally off topic, uh, a new kind of, well, it's not a biography, but it's a new book on Julius Caesar called Julius Caesar and the Roman People. And uh, it's by Robert mm -hmm. Morstein Marx. And part mm -hmm. of the book, well, one chapter is about the, the Civil War. And he's got an appendix on there mm -hmm. with his kind of game theory analysis of the relations between Pompey and Caesar and exactly how they broke down. And um, mm -hmm. he, he, he busts a lot of myths in the book on what, what, what actually happened. But what, what, he, what he basically argues is that the, the kind of classic um, game theory, kind of prisoner's, prisoner's dilemma, um, um, iterated games kind of method of looking at this was, was mm -hmm. that it, it's a good explanation for what happened with, between Caesar and Pompey, where <clears throat> trust mm -hmm. was degraded on both sides to the extent that, that each side mm -hmm. saw, um, conflict as inevitable. Now it turns out that Caesar actually mm -hmm. held open the possibility for peace, um, a lot longer than, than most people actually think when they're looking at history. So it broke down, you know, it wasn't crossing the Rubicon that was the, that was actually the, the go, the, the time to go to war. Um, after that, there was still, there were still negotiations and still, um, um, like entreaties to, uh, and embassies to, to, to make peace and to, to avoid a war. But the, the overall message was that it was this complete breakdown in trust that either, that both sides mm -hmm. eventually saw that, well, no, I can't, I can't do this because I can't trust that they will be able to make an agreement. And how have the Russians been right, seeing right. Americans for the last 10, 15 years? Well, I think it was Lavrov who put it, he used a Russian phrase for it or a Russian word, not agreement capable. That, you know, you say one thing, you do another. You, uh, um, you know, we, we talk to one person. Or, or we talk to the executive branch, they say one thing, and then the CIA does another thing, the military does another thing. You're not all on the same page. We can't trust yeah. you. So there's this, com yeah. there, when, when the levels of trust have, been, have broken down so completely, then, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's almost, well, it's like uh, war is the, the continuation of politics by other means or whatever. Was that Clausewitz? I don't know. But it's like right, when, right, right. when international relations break down like that, it's like the, the base state mm -hmm. that they revert to is warfare. And it's like, you know, people right. should be, you'd think that politicians should be aware of this and wanting to avoid it. But, you know, not, not every, well, you know, not every leader, not every politician wants to avoid war. I mean, they, they might, but mm -hmm. not necessarily. I mean, it's not like we're living in a, a world without war and that this is some aberration. I mean, there are reasons for why wars happen and... They, you, in in hindsight, they're always preventable, or at least you know we can look back and say, oh, this should have been done, this should have been done, um, right? And, and we should to learn the lesson for it. But um, there, like, it's just frustrating that that effort isn't put in, you know, in the present, and it, and from any present hasn't mm -hmm. been put in 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 the past years to make it um, not a, if not an inevitability, then a very high probability. Yeah. It's basically uh, the American hubris sort of uh, drove us into this <coughs> position. And now at the same time, we see a de degradation of the American system itself. You're seeing less uh, discipline within the system that uh, rogue intelligence uh, services, the military is entirely politicized. It's not clear what kind of control Biden is capable of uh, uh, executing over uh, various institutions. Um, all this uh, is also deeply uh, 
dis- disconcerting. And 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 this mm-hmm. is probably what Lavrov is confronting when he's he's um, meeting with all these different entities. And there doesn't seem to be any adult in the room in Washington D.C. to say, you know, okay, the Russians overreacted. They overreacted in Crimea, you know. But we've done some pretty provocative stuff too. And you know, yeah, we'd like to expand NATO to the borders and then we could sell weapons to all those countries and so forth and so on and expand our businesses to all those countries and kick the Russians, keep the Russians basically out. And uh, yeah, that would be all to our advantage. But the problem is um, we're risking a nuclear war trying to achieve this. And is it really worthwhile? Maybe we ought to just pull back and wait, maybe figure out a different way to accomplish all these goals, right? <laughs> Rather than just upping the ante constantly. Um you know, basically, the United States was not involved at all in the in the Minsk process at all for the for this whole eight to seven year period after the first Minsk ag- agreement. There was no effort, and now uh, Biden's advice to uh, Zelensky is, uh, you know, yeah, it's up to you if you want to give up territory for peace. Uh, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna make any suggestions and so forth and so on. Um, and it just seems like a not to mention the the biggest the biggest the biggest. Uh, do you call it uh, negligence or <laughs> uh, it's worse than negligence? It's really, again, probably a, a function of the hubris is the uh, whole the whole strategy of NATO expansion and Ukraine, right? Based mm-hmm. on our assumptions about Putin, you know, the, the, the line is that Putin is aggressive. He either wants to recreate the Soviet Union. He certainly wants to take Ukraine. Um, He's aggressive and he's unstable and he's a bully and he's a street thug and so forth and so on. At the same time, we promote a policy that Putin despises. Going because of the history that we have in the post-Cold War era, the promise and so forth and so on. And we promise that Ukraine and Georgia someday are going to be members of NATO. But while this nasty Putin is sitting there over the border and we're doing these things, getting nasty Putin angry by saying, NATO's uh, Ukraine's going to be in NATO, and then after um, the events of 2014, and in recent years, we begin sending weapons into Ukraine. The Brits are building two bases in Ukraine. Um, basically, NATO, as Putin made the point, you know, Ukraine's becoming a member of NATO without becoming a, a member of NATO. Um, uh, Where all this is all, all this is going on in, in front of a guy who you, you say is just dying to punch somebody in the nose. Right. And it's like you're walking up to a bully. Everyone tells you, you know, if you go up to that guy's uh, that guy and you stare into his eyes, you're going to get punched in his face. (laughs) And you go up into up to him and you stare in his eyes and he get punched in his face and punched in the face. Okay, now who's guilty? Of course, he's guilty because that's his character. Right. Uh, On the other hand, you're guilty for going up there and challenging him. Right. Maybe you didn't need to. Maybe you didn't need to do that. Maybe you should have let somebody else. Or four guys two weeks from now gang up on him, beat him up, and maybe he'll learn his lesson. Right down the road, you didn't need to sort of confront confront him in his wheel in 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 his wheelhouse. And at the same time, we're doing all this. We're saying no, but Ukraine's going to yes, Ukraine's going to enter NATO. Putin, too bad you don't like it, but not now. Maybe in five years, maybe in ten years. So Vladimir Vladimir Vladimirovich, you have five ten year window in which you can. Resolve this problem any way you choose. And we have previous experience of what happened in Georgia, right? <laughs> so where is the surprise? Why are we surprised? This is, 
There's, there, there is no reason whatsoever to be surprised about this. I was surprised about the timing. I didn't think he would do it now. But uh, I was sure that if things continued to go in the direction they did, it would happen sooner or later. Because we created a situation in which it became logical for Putin to do what he did. I want Gordon, I want to ask your um, your response to to something that like a a counterpoint that you know I've I've heard and seen in various ways. I was watching a stream uh, the other day where it came up. Um, so there what about what would you respond to the people? Well, before before I get to that, I want to mention an article that uh, that you put up. It was a pretty short one on I can't remember the title of it, but it was basically on um, Russian security culture and and NATO mm-hmm. um, NATO as an actual well how to pers- how to understand perceiving NATO as an actual threat. And you you brought up the point that you know that even if even if it even assuming and it is true um, that NATO is this totally benign. Um, you know, security um, structure that doesn't mm-hmm. factor into um, to a nation's um, security um, analysis, and you know what goes into their what goes mm-hmm. into their planning and their their look at their their view of the situation. Because that you don't look at the situation necessarily as it is; you look at it as it is, but you you have to take into account all pos- all potentialities mm-hmm. so you have to take into account mm-hmm. nato as the way it is nato as it could be mm-hmm. and what could happen with mm-hmm. just some changes of heads of state because as you mentioned countries change governments right. change and if right. you right. if you say oh well this country is really nice right now We're, we don't have a, a good relationship with them but we don't have any problems with them so i'm just going to leave it alone and not consider it and then next year the mm-hmm. country gets taken over it descends into some kind of like authoritarian nightmare and all of a sudden they are now your enemy. Oh, it's like, oh, well, and you don't want, like it would, it wouldn't make, it doesn't make any sense politically, geopolitically, militarily to just um, leave yourself open to that possibility. So, so in that sense, that, that's, I think that was a good explanation um, just really briefly that you wrote on kind of just geopolitics and how, how nations in general look at their security. It's like you, you have to take into account potentialities as well. And so mm-hmm. like with the five to 10 years thing, okay, well, you're not NATO now. Well, you, well, you've stated you will be in five to 10 years or that it, you could be. Well, what if you are, what if things change in the, in the meantime, we have to, we have to mm-hmm. take into account from Russia's perspective, right. we have to take into account those, those potentialities. Now, one of the things that, um, the, th- well, I'll, I'll ask you to, to respond to that if you have anything else to say about that, but also th- I've heard this a lot coming from. Um, what I'd consider kind of um, the the young generation of political commentators that like kind of more alternative, mm-hmm. not in not necessarily like uh, big news channels or anything like that, but uh, just guys on the internet, mm-hmm. kind of like um, well, I won't name anyone, but and this is the kind of uh, the, the kind of, uh, very like patriotic pro American, but anti government kind of at the same time, and they're saying, oh well. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this was this was totally evil. Um, just because because um, Ukraine is a is a sovereign country, they have the they have the right to choose if they want to be in NATO. And that was kind of like end of mm-hmm. discussion. It kind right. of goes in that directions. But I wanted to, wanted right. to know if you had right. any. Res- I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll give my short response. Yeah, sure, but mm-hmm. things are more complicated than that. Right. <laughs> um, um, what it, right. what would you say to something like yeah. that? Well. I, um, to the first question, to the first question um, that, that you raised, there are a couple of things. One is, uh, first of all, countries don't make their 
military strategy, their defense posture, their defense and security intelligence budgets based on the intentions of other countries. So if you assume, right, that democratic regimes are more benign, they're not going to attack anyone, um, that's fine, but that doesn't raise, that doesn't address the issue of capability. And if you look at the capability of the democratic, uh, so-called democratic, uh, Republican, uh, free market block of NATO, um, you're seeing, you see the largest military alliance in world history, right, coming to Russia's borders. So that's one issue. Uh, the other issue is that, um, uh, I forgot my, forgot my second point. Um, Ah, the other issue is the, the problem of um, regime change and authoritarianization that can occur over time in Europe. You know, there's nothing written in uh, some holy book somewhere that says the West is going to remain entirely democratic uh, for uh, history and therefore it's benign. Of course, we know that even as a democratic, <laughs> even, even in, dem in its democratic state, it's not always uh, benign. But put, put, put that large question aside, which is very important in itself, and just look at the possibility that, right, if you use the democratic peace theory, right, that two democratic or democratic regimes are less likely to go to war, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you buy that argument, then, of course, the, 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 the full argument is that they don't go to war with each other. Um, the other, the argument that they don't go to war with authoritarian regimes is less clear. But if you want to make that argument, you look at that, right? Um, it just it doesn't hold water because if you, even if you look inside NATO, right, we already see Turkey, for example, is a borderline. Um, even if you look at the standard, uh, you know, rankings of uh, democratic countries, Turkey is, you know, not a high ranker there. No one can argue it's a soft authoritarian regime and not really a, um, a full-fledged democracy or an illiberal democracy. Maybe we, we could lose that, lose that terminology. Um if you look at uh, people, uh, for example, liberals in the West accuse Hungary of moving in an authoritarian direction. For a while, they were accusing until things happened with Ukraine. Now they need Poland, but they were making the same argument about Poland. Now everybody's going to forget about that, but uh, they were making the same argument about Poland. So it's quite clear that, yes, um, democratic countries that are NATO members can move in a more authoritarian direction. And if they can move in a new authoritarian direction, then according to the theory, they're likely to be more aggressive. Um, uh, so that's uh, that argument. And then your second point was, again, I, I forgot the, um, the second you know, issue. Ukraine is a sovereign country. It, it gets to choose if it wants to be involved in NATO. Oh, know, to okay. Be that's, uh, that, that's, a, that, yeah, that's the, the open door. The open door argument, right? We, we, we open the doors. The doors stay open. We didn't even open the doors. <laughs> Sometimes the argument's made almost as if that's the case. You know, here's NATO. The doors are open. Well, you know. What can we do? The doors are open. <laughs> doors are open. People are going to walk through, right? Well, what can we do? Oh, yeah, you can you can close the doors. It's very simple, right? Or you can close the doors temporarily, right? And uh, say, well, well, we'll invite more members in when Russia democratizes, and maybe we can bring Russia in. So we won't have a problem with Russia, right? Um, could have done that in the, in the early 90s. Brought, brought Russia in first. Kept that secret that that was our goal, but tried to arrange things such that Re Russia came in in any first wave of expansion. And if it took 10 years to negotiate that, fine. Who cares? At that time, it there was no problem. Uh, there was no security issue with Russia. Um, so that's one thing. The doors, you know, are kept open and, and uh, by the West. The West, the West uh, can, can close the doors. Um, the other issue is that uh, that decision is not made 
based on the NATO charter, you know, whether Ukraine's going to be um, Ukraine in the present context of the world today, in Eurasian Europe today, whether Ukraine becomes a, a member of NATO is not something that's going to be decided by the NATO charter. And it's not going to be decided by whether Russia has a right, some God-given right, or the West has some right, God-given right to expand NATO, or Russia has a God-given right to um, not allow uh, Ukraine to join NATO, and or doesn't have a right to a sphere of influence, like they like to say in NATO. For, for example, Russia has no right to a sphere of influence. None of this, this is international relations, okay? International relations and international law, they're not very sticky things, right? Great powers do what the heck they want quite often. We saw that in uh, Kosovo. We saw that in Serbia when we bombed Belgrade without, Belgrade without a NATO a mandate. Uh, in Libya, when we violated the UN resolution that we wouldn't get involved when we set up the no-fly zone. Um, uh, happens all the time but when we recognize Kosovo and so forth and so forth and so on. Great powers have the ability to establish rights, and they usually do that either through negotiations or by force. And there are no rights. <laughs> when it comes to competition between great powers, there are no rights. There are rights to the extent that great powers recognize that there are rights and agree to them, right? You know, so, so there were a set of rules post-Yalta, you know, about the post-World uh, post War II uh, world. Uh, the problem is there were no rules ever established about the post-Cold War world, right? Um, and we began to establish a rule when we said we would not expand NATO one inch past Germany, and then we violated it. And ever since then, it's been great powers, the superpower of the United States and its allied powers expanding NATO because there's nothing Russia could do about it. Now, Russia decided there's something they can do about it, at least in Ukraine. So this is how things are resolved. If people don't want to come to agree, you know, it's, it's, it's I know I sound like I'm giving a baby talk, but <laughs> unfortunately, there are people in Washington, D.C. Washington and D.C. who just don't seem to understand these fundamental things, right? They're, it's not a matter of Russia having a right. Russia will prove that it has a right or not. It will, it will establish in Ukraine by some sort of victory or defeat in this war, whether or not it has um, the capability, it's not a matter of right, of establishing a sphere of influence in, over Ukraine. And that's what it's come mm -hmm. down to. And, and we created that situation in which... Uh, all rules were basically no 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 holds barred, and pushed Russia into a, a corner of sorts. Uh, created a, an illegit illegitimate regime in Kiev, um, uh, and so forth. So, what this yeah. is the situation we've come to? Yeah, it's uh, it's the our rules based international order, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how are we doing for time, Gordon? Do you have to get going or do you have a bit more time? Um, I probably got 10 more minutes. Okay. Um, maybe then, maybe as a way of kind of um, getting back to your book and mm -hmm. and summarizing, summarizing it a bit. Um, well, <clears throat> well, so currently, currently, as you, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're, we're kind of on the cusp of that that um first phase that's you know the end of a cycle it's mm -hmm. the the end the mm -hmm. the kind of re-traditionalizing of of russia and 
I wanted to just bring up a couple things, maybe ask you to, to give your thoughts on those too. And that I kind of hinted at this with the Navalny thing is that, um, um, people don't, you know, Westerners don't understand Russian history. They don't understand Russian strategic culture, um, or political culture. And to the extent that they understand, you know, Russian culture, it doesn't really, you know, it, it's not, not sufficient for understanding what's going on or for understanding Russians, I think. Um, but, um, but people actually don't understand Russian people. And by Russian people, I mean just, um, I'll, I'll use a stereotype, like the Russian stereotype. So, of course, not, not all Russians are like that, right? But there is, uh, but nations do have trends. So I was looking at, um, uh, there's an article that came out recently um, that Jonathan Haidt co-wrote, and he's a psychologist, and he's famous for his um, his uh, moral foundations. I don't think he, well, he developed, he helped refine it and develop it basically the moral foundations that people mm -hmm. have. And so you can compare um, yeah. within groups. So you can compare, you know, um, d Democrats and Republicans in the States. Uh, but now they've, ex they've done a huge study expanding that to world, to different cultures around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when looking at it, there's, you know, there's basically, according to, to what they, how they look at it, how they look at it, there's basically like six moral foundations. And some of them are, for instance, um, like compassion, author authority, loyalty, um, purity. Um, and these are, these are the kinds of things that people either value or, or don't value. And they s seems kind of to be like the, the main psychological foundations of, of the, the moralities that different cultures have. Now, Russians, um, can you guess what Russians are? The top two, the strongest among Russians are loyalty and authority. So these will kind of, these will kind of trump, um, it'll trump compassion Though that's not to say that Russians aren't compassionate or can't be compassionate, it'll trump um, even purity to some degree. But but purity is often tied with those among, let's say, Republicans or conservatives in the in the states, for instance. So <clears throat> so when when people are looking at Russia or looking at Russians, I think there's a lot of projection going on that oh, you know, the Russian people must really want what we want, which is um, you know, to mm -hmm. be a, a liberal democracy. Well, it's like, well, maybe under certain conditions, but let's look at what they actually want now. You know, after after the war, all indications are that like seventy plus percent of the population supports Putin and supports the supports the war going on. And and once once mm -hmm. Russia commits to a path like that, it's like again, look at that history. There's what did mm -hmm. Russia do when they committed to World War II? Well, they didn't just you know slink off from the corner. They lost twenty seven million people or whatever mm -hmm. winning the war. And, um, and it's like, the, I mean, I, I've, I've been to Russia once I visited a few years ago. And what's the one thing you, you notice wherever you go in Russia, tanks, you know, tanks and, uh, and like monuments and stuff. So you, you turn a corner and there's like a tank and kids are playing on it. You know, it's like a, like a statue of a tank, you know, or maybe a, like a monument and kids are playing on it. I went to this one market and they've got like these, these kind of, uh, artillery, mortar firing things and they're all painted with the flowers and they're part of like a permanent installation. You walk around and this, that's what Russia's mm -hmm. like. And that's what Russians are like. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to ask your opinion on that and see if you had any comments or like, you know, things that you could, that you might tell people to, to, to say, well, this is kind of what Rush, what Russia's mm -hmm. actually like, or maybe you want to kind of like contradict me or, or, you know, tell me I'm missing something. Uh -huh. there. No, I think the, 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 <laughs> there's a, there's a lot in there to, um, to unwrap, you might say, you know, if, if you take Billington's book on the history of Russian culture, uh, the icon, the axe, um, if you want to take uh, the title of my book and change it into symbols on that on that model, 
it might be you know uh, <laughs> the tank and the the tank and the trader, right? <laughs> uh, those are the two icons. Those are the two icons of the Russia's security vigilance culture, right? Or the vigilance norm, right? Is right that the tank is for self defense against uh, those uh, crazy Westerners who who knows are going to throw up another Hitler someday or another Smuta or something. Um, and the traitors, those people inside who, inside our country who don't understand that, <laughs> right? And that's a real part of, of Russia's uh, political culture. That doesn't need to be overstated, right? It doesn't mean that there's an intense anti-Westernism. That's not true. And, and, and again, as I said earlier, there's recessive periods when pro-Westernism uh, comes, in, comes to the fore. And so on the other, on the, other uh, the, the poll you mentioned, that's actually more interesting and it serves as almost <laughs> as an introduction as a segue from this uh, book that we're talking about, Russia's Dilemma, to my next book, which is going to be published called Celestness, which is um, wholeness in Russian culture, thought, culture, history, and politics. And basically that came out of the end of uh, this book, right? The idea was that, so if, if um, dissent and um, disunity inside the country is a danger because it can be used by outside Western forces to weaken us and prepare for an invasion or get us to abandon our culture and to move in more opposite directions and uh, from our tradition and create more pluralism, which creates more dissent, dis dissent and so forth and so on. And then at some point, <coughs> the West can use that. The opposite of that is, right, a desire and aspiration for unity, right? So if you look at those two, what was it, uh, the two characteristics, Lo chief, were loyalty authority and loyalty, and authority. right? Right, well, loyalty and authority. Well, what 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 guarantees um, unity? It's everyone being loyal to the authority, right? Otherwise, you have dissent, dissent, and disunion, and and problems. And so, basically, my new my new book is zealousness. Is the idea is that there are basically four different types of zealousness. The last one is the political kind, which we just talked about. But that's sort of a symptom or a end result of the first three. And the, the first three are. Um, uh, Celis is what I'm calling monism, and that is it comes basically from religion, though it had it morphed during the Soviet period into different into other things, man and machine. But in its origins in, in, in religious Russian religious culture is um, the idea that God and man are united, heaven and earth are united, uh, spirit and um, matter are united. And this because of the deep religious nature of uh, the, the Russian people up until 1917, um, this became, you know, uh, an assumption of value and an aspiration, right? The idea that at the end of the world, uh, in the second coming, Christ comes down and heaven and earth are united, right? And spirit and matter dissolve into one, into God and so forth, into, into the single being, right? Uh, so that's the first form, monism. And then the next is universalism, right? The idea that the whole world should be united, right? And, you know, I don't want to go into all the details because we're, we're, we're limited on time, but essentially the most simple version, right, is, uh, is the, 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 um, the Soviet period, right? When the idea of the socialism, united um, socialist uh, world, the, the proletarian of the world, proletarians of the world unite, um, right? We would create a united world government and all the world would be united. The same thing that, that is preceded in, in orthodox in the in the idea of orthodox religion in which everyone according to the christian faith not just the orthodox but the christian faith right is everyone will become uh christian those those who, who are not will be condemned to hell once everyone becomes a believer and, and uh a christian you know uh 
Of course, there's the idea of the problem of the apocalypse, but once at some point, the people who remain will all be believers, and then you have the apocalypse and then the second coming, right? Uh, so that's another idea of universal. And there are many, many others. Dostoevsky writes about it. Um, Dostoevsky writes about how Pushkin, uh, his main character, and it's the main character of the Russian people, is their uh, receptivity to other cultures, right? So their ability to um, relate to other cultures and, and their desire to, uh, you know, uh, understand European literature, understand Eastern religions, their, their attractiveness, and, and then their ability in Pushkin's case to actually, in his literature, portray these things in a way that's almost as if he's from India or he's from France or whatever. Right. <clears throat> and then Dostoevsky, this is the chief Dostoevsky, right, who's obviously a very influential figure in Russian culture, argues that this is the essential character of the Russian people. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is another form of universalism. And there are many others. And I go through the whole history of, of Russian culture and history and thought and show different examples. The third kind is um, collectivism, which we, you know, they are obvious, right? The, the communalism of the uh, pre-Soviet period, right, of the, uh, the Russian um, village and the so-called Russian obshino or agrarian community in which you had, you know, a set of, you know, 10 or 15 families that joined together, uh, no private property, but they worked the land together and they exchanged plots and so forth and so on. And, and then shared the uh, uh, the produce and so forth and so on. And then the Soviet collectivism period, we don't need to talk about that. It's obvious, right? The Soviet collectivism is a continuation of that. So those are that's the third, communalism, collectivism. And then the final, final is this political uni unity, which I call solidarnost, right? Or solidarity in Russian solidarnost. And... Uh, and that basically is uh, uh, the idea that um, we should aspire, or there is actually some kind of national, political, cultural, uh, linguistic, whatever unity. Um, and if, if it doesn't exist, then we we need to make it exist. And this, of course, creates, I'm not saying an, an insurmountable barrier, but a certain barrier, barrier to pluralism, right? Because if everybody is supposed to be united, well, then there shouldn't be a lot of squabbling parties. You know, there shouldn't be a lot of competing businesses, uh, different, uh, a clash structure where people, people have different levels of interest and conflicting interests, right, and so forth. This is not uh, conducive to unity. I, I, and again, I want to make a caveat, I don't see this as an insurmountable barrier, but it does lead to a certain tendency to, under certain circumstances, reject pluralism and reject the free market uh, and so on. And then again, this is also, you know, something that, that undergoes all these different values, especially the collectivism and uh, solidarism, also undergo this recessive dominant shifting, depending on the situation, right? It's part of this change in Russian culture and politics and, and, and thinking that, that changes over time, depending on events inside the country and events that occur in the West. And so that's the new book that I just, uh, in fact, just signed a contract for and should be published okay. in about four months. And I don't know if they're going to let me keep the title Sellousness, but <laughs> yeah. that's the title right now, <laughs> which, which, which basically means wholeness in Russian or mm -hmm. integrality, which I recently found out actually isn't an English word. There is no, you don't have a word called integrality. So well, and integrity doesn't really work. Well, I, I just have two, two quick closing comments. Uh, One is, uh, that sounds like a very interesting book. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of the themes that were examined uh, by Gary Lackman in The Return of Holy Russia. I don't know if you had a mm -hmm. chance to 
to look I at that book. I have read that, but I probably should read it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just just how deeply you're going into some of these themes uh, is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And and just the other thing, I'll, I'll say my, my last word: your caveats are superb. <laughs> Great caveats. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the whole <laughs> show. <laughs> I enjoyed them. Oh, yeah, that if was great, want, Gordon. If you want to, if you want a draft of the book, I'll send you a copy by email. Uh, any comments oh, appreciated? It. Yeah, Thank no, you. I'd love yeah. it. And um, it's not published yet, but I can send you. I yep, can send yep. you the draft in PDF form or whatever. Yep. No, we'd love to. We'd love to check it out, and then maybe. Well, well, of course, when it's when it's published, then we can uh, we can have you on again uh, to talk about it because that sounds yeah sounds right up our alley. Um, I know you got to go. They're saying it should be published. Yeah, they're saying it be published in four months. So that's excellent. Okay, well, great. Thank yeah. you, Gordon. We'll give we'll give a link to uh, where you can buy the book in our in the show description. Okay. The website is gordonhan.com, H-A-H-N, uh, or is it gordonmhan.com? No, gordonhan. Gordonhan.com. Gordonhan.com. So you can check out your mm-hmm. your regular writings on uh, current events and uh, and things of that sort. So thank you, Gordon. We had a great time. Uh, enjoy the book. And looking time. forward to talking to you again. Always great to talk to you guys. Always great to talk to you Thank guys. You. It's always a fun interview. Thank right, you very much. Great. We appreciate Bye-bye. you. Take, Take care. care. Stay Take safe. Care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.